Welcome to DBPA, the Drunk Bitches Podcast. I'm Jamie. And I'm Sarah. Each episode, we pair a wine with a topic where you get more lip with each sip. So let's get started. But first, pass the wine, bitch. Welcome to part two of the DBP Book Club. Sarah and I are going to be kind of adventuring down, you know, what we've been busy reading over the past few months since our last book club and reporting back on whether we would or would not recommend these. We obviously have a little more time on our hands, I think. <laughs> would you agree? Yeah, I definitely agree. And it's a good time to, you know, read. Hunker get down. Get through some books. Get that book. Uh, yeah. So Sarah actually has the wine of the week again. She has, oh my God, guys, this is so long. It's a 2013, 2013. Pinot Noir. 2013? Uh, it's called Ghostwriter. And this is from the Aptos Creek Vineyard in Santa Cruz, California. Yeah. I am going to pop this baby open. Uh, admittedly, I don't think you can find this vintage right now, but they do have other wines on their website. Yeah, on their website, they're <laughs> this apt- one doesn't want to open. There we go. Got it. Uh, on their website, their Aptos Creek Vineyard wine is about fifty dollars, which I know that's not how much I paid for this because Jamie, you know me and like my bargains that I'm. I, to I do, I do, especially especially if we're talking about this sounds really snooty, but like a Pinot from Cali, I'm not sure that I would fork that over. I agree, but they do have cheaper wines on their website. They have a thirty dollar Pinot, and their Syrah is about thirty dollars too. Mm, now Syrah, that sounds good. That yeah, sounds good. they've got a typewriter on the cork. I mean, that's a ghostwriter, right? Yeah. It's very yeah. cute. I like their it's branding. Very cute. I do too. So I'm going to get myself pouring here. This is a 13.5% ABV. Um, and Aptos Creek Vineyard is in Santa Cruz. All right. Yeah. So it's like go. not far from the boardwalk, guys. If y'all have been there, it's like right up, right up right. the mountain. Jamie, I am cheersing you. Cheers. And I nice. believe you are also drinking a California Pinot, correct? You know, I am. I am drinking a California Pinot. I opened this a couple days ago. wasn't super pleased with it. So I'm giving it another try. And in fact, I have the wand from Pure, yeah. Pure Wine in here. So uh, we're going to see if that improves it at all. But I'm not really going to yeah. talk about this Pinot. But I felt okay. like I needed to, you know, get as close as what you're drinking. I like the there- space you're making. There's a lot going on. Like what? A lot going on. It's like fruity but earthy. Like there, you, I get a lot of like wet stone maybe. But it like it's more like Burgundian style. Yeah, it is darker, I think. It, um, that looks like a – I mean, mine looks pretty, pretty dark too actually. Well, you know, it's actually when you look down at it, it's not that dark. But it is – it seems a little bit darker than Burgundian style but I, I'm getting like a lot of cherry and cranberry. Mm, okay. That sounds good. But I'm getting that like earthy wet stone kind of funk too nice. going on. Funk. So, but I think it does funky. need to breathe a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Cause you know, it's 2013 and it's 2020. So I think. I have not had an old Pinot like that. Um, I do have a couple on my own wine shelf that are older. Like I think I have a 2011 yeah. and a 2014. Pretty sure that I need to be drinking those pretty soon. Well, you know, it can be an experiment, right? So Ghost Rider, this wine, um, the first vintage was in 2008. 
They have a few little vineyards that they make Pinot from. This one is Aptos Creek. It's actually only two acres. Can you that believe is that? Tiny. Yeah. People it's, live on houses on two acre lots. I know. It's dry farmed, organically farmed, and it's sandy. It's slightly elevated. It's about 40 feet above the Aptos Creek in the Santa Cruz Mountains before it runs into the Pacific Ocean. Apparently, this might be their last vintage from this vineyard because they say the property's for sale right now. So I'm sorry, the 2018 may be the last vintage from this vineyard. Uh, the property's for sale and they're saying it doesn't seem that they will continue to farm or be able to source the fruit. Um, and they've had storms that brought down deer fencing and ruined their crop. So for now, 2018 may be their last vintage, but they're sad because it's argu arguably their best. Maybe that's so, why, A, it's $50. <laughs> the 2018, yeah, yeah, it could be. But um, man, that's a bummer. Yeah. So, but they say out of all their Pinots, the Aptos Creek one is usually the most dark and brooding. They use extended maceration with this one. Okay. So, so and that's they, why it's going to be so dark and yep. colored and probably has a little bit more tannin maybe than normal. Yeah. So I think they're saying that the wine can be overstated with extended maceration. So I think they, I actually read that wrong. They um, try and keep their fermentation quick, cool, and gentle. So the opposite. Oh, okay. Um, and they use about 10% new oak. Okay. So it's not very oaky at all, which I prefer that, especially with Pinot. <laughs> Agreed. But all their wines are fermented without commercial yeast. Um, they age them primarily in neutral French barrels and concrete eggs with a small percentage of new oak. So like we said, this one has 10%. And they have very little sulfur that they add. And they don't use any fining or filtration. And they do all their harvesting and cultivation by hand. That's another reason why I think that it could be a slightly more expensive wine. I mean, who's to say that we had that with the 2013 because we couldn't find that information? You know, I think that that just kind of speaks to their principles and things like that. I agree. Interestingly enough about Santa Cruz Mountains, this is actually where Ridge is from the Paris tasting. They talk about it in one of the Somme documentaries. These vineyards are, they're not easy to farm and they're not high yielding. So usually they're kind of one of those more expensive or more well-known places mm -hmm. just because of that. And also they have a little bit of a cool climate. So they are known for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. They've got lots of mountain crevices, canyons, hilltops, and their vineyards are much higher. Some are more than 2,000 feet in elevation. Anyways, that's a little bit about where this is from. Delicious. Two acres. I mean, I actually, I don't know. That. It sounds delicious by what you've described. And it, it, it sounds it, like it they is. have really good practices. So, yeah. Um, and I know I've seen it. I love the label. Like you said, I love the branding of this. And so is it right? There are poems that are on the labels. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Does it this say one. where it's derived from? Like, is it an actual like poem in circulation or is this something that they uh, have written themselves? I, you know, I'm not sure. Um, I know that he talks about that they like to put poems on their labels, but where they come from, I'm not sure. They say that they call this the ghostwriter because it represents the idea that a wine may be the pages that contain a story, but that the story itself belongs to the sites, the vines, and the vintage. And the winemaker, when successful, may be a lively storyteller, but only that. Oh. 
So I like that. I really like that sentiment about the fact that the winemaker is just the narrator, basically, the one telling the story. They are, they're essentially, the vineyards are the ones who are the ghostwriters, I guess, in this sense. And to be honest, (coughs) I think that that's how the old world wines are made. They want the vines to do the the talking. They want the soils to do the talking. They want all of that. And so there's not as much, I don't want to say that there's not as much technique because it's still a technique for sure, but there's not as much winemaker intervention with sort of like the nuances that we find a little bit more in the new world. So that's very cool. No, I I agree. And I I do think that this wine tastes like that, that it represents kind of that old world style that you're talking about. I'm very jealous that I'm not drinking that because I'm going to tell you something, the wine didn't work. Oh, I'm sorry. I think it made it worse. Oh no. Oh no, guys. See, this is why we uh, need to get COVID out of the way so we can join one another in our wine adventures again. So Jamie, what exactly is a ghostwriter? Okay. So a ghostwriter is someone who's hired to write literary or journalistic works, speeches, plays, music, film, blah, blah, blah. And it's officially credited to another person as the author or the writer. So this person essentially is the behind the scenes it's like the Wizard of Oz. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. That's exactly yeah. what this is. You know, it seems very popular, I think, for books. It can be done, you know, if somebody themselves is a bad writer, but they don't want to admit it <laughs> or if they don't have time to do it. There are a number of very high profile humans who have used ghostwriters. Some examples include, I'll, I'll start with the politics uh, first, Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton and John F. Kennedy, the much beloved former president, they all used ghostwriters for some of their books. Now, I don't know if this is like their autobiographies. I know in some cases it's memoirs, but that is an instance where, you know, they have a lot of other things going on. They probably read it and proofread it, had input and kind of made sure that it was in their own voice, but they had other people write. For example, for Hillary Clinton's memoir, the ghostwriter made $500,000. Jesus. Christ. Yes. And I'm sure that you need to sign a very big non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> so I see here that Tom Clancy, Nancy Drew, and Hardy mm-hmm. Boys all use mm-hmm. that is insane. Those are like yeah. some major books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huge name, Tom Clancy. Um, but the thing is that he became so popular so quickly, he couldn't keep up with the demand for the books. Now, oh. you could make the argument that as an author, like you should keep them wanting more. And so you could have, you know, supply and demand, like demand goes up as supply is down, right? You know, it's surprising to me that they went that route, but I mean, that, yeah, they have a number of people. They have like a team who work as ghostwriters for Tom Clancy and they kind of use, you know, the tried and true methods, I think, of and style of Tom Clancy himself. Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys were two series that they also had people who just took on the similar voice and just kind of wrote the stories and came up with the ideas. So, yeah, that's that's crazy. Actually, Tom Clancy and Hardy Boys are some of Adam's favorite books. Oh, really? I haven't read yeah. either. <laughs> same, same. But if you want to, let me tell you how many we have that you can borrow. Well, okay. Well, I don't think we have any books that we're talking about today that were written by a ghostwriter, but it is really cool to know about. Yeah. Not um, that, that we're getting of. Yeah. No. Although, I mean, wait, can I tell you something that I found out? Was, I don't know the veracity of this or like how many, how often this is the case, but you might be able to tell 
maybe that's going too far. Maybe I'm stepping over a line, but they say that sometimes ghostwriters are actually acknowledged like in like at the very end of a book, you know, the acknowledgements, the thank yous, things like that. They could be referred to as contributors, um, researchers, research assistants. I don't know if that means that they wrote the book, if they wrote sections. Um, You know, I would argue that some people honestly just use them for research to ask like interview for questions and like do conduct research that way. But just saying that uh, according to Wikipedia, and actually according to, uh, there was a literary agent who disclosed some of this, that might be a way that you can tell who might be a ghostwriter. On a ah, mm-hmm. okay. Yes. Subtle clues. Subtle. It's I a like mystery. It. We might have to do a mystery episode. I'm kind of in the mood. Oh my God. Are you? I don't know. I mean, like there's nothing else we have to think about, right? Okay. Except well, trying not to get sick. One of my books will get there for you. Okay. All right. Okay, cool. So what is your first book? So we are going through three books each. Um, and I can tell you that mine are all read pre-COVID. So I'm going to have to start working on my quarantine collection. Oh, really? only one of mine was, was pre-COVID. Okay. Um, wow. So maybe I'll go, maybe I'll start with that. All right, go for it. Okay, so this might sound familiar. So last for our first book club episode, I talked about this book called One of Us is Lying by Karen McManus. Yes. And I found out doing research for our episode that she has a sequel to it. So it's called One of Us is Next. Okay. And so I decided after our first installation of book club that I would read this one just to find out like how it goes. Because I was like, I thought that you closed things up pretty nice and tight. (laughs) And? Well, the book, it's interesting. So I mean, it brings back a number of characters. I'm not going to give out too much information. Even the synopsis, I don't know if it would contain any spoilers. The premise of the first book is that there is this gossip app within a high school. And the creator of that, which you find out very soon at the beginning, is that this guy dies during detention. But they think there's something sinister about it. So they have to look into it. And that's that's the whole book. And it's I thought it was really engaging. And I thought it was very interesting. So this one kind of carries on, you know, a lot of people have apparently tried to reinvent the gossip app and kind of do the same thing. The school itself shuts it all down. Um, In fact, I think you can get like legally in trouble if you do that because of what transpired after the last time. So it was pretty quiet at Bayview High. And then isn't Bayview, what is Bayview High? Wasn't that like, so that's Bayview, something else. Well, one, Bayview is a city here in Milwaukee that has Oh yeah, school. that's true. Uh, that's and true. two, I feel like that's pretty close to, if not the same oh, name Bayside. as Saved by the Bell. Yeah, Bayside. Bayside. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. All right. Because when I, when I read that and like said it out loud, I was just like, oh wait, that sounds too familiar. Sounds familiar, right? yeah. Anyway, so um, it turns out that it didn't go from an app. It went to just text messages, anonymous text messages. And it was a game of truth or dare. And that's how you would gossip would be shared if the person didn't do what they were told to do. So it was a very interesting twist to, you know, kind of the story that came out before in the first book. I still really like when authors, and I think I mentioned this before, when authors change vantage point. Um, so it can either tell something like that occurred simultaneously. So you can kind of relive the same moment in all these different characters, minds or experiences, right. or it just uses different vantage points to continue the story forward. So she does a little bit of both in this. 
I do still really like that. Um, it certainly had me guessing like through the end because, you know, I always like to like figure out if I can solve the, the mystery ahead of time. I did kind of like it overall. Um, it is a fast read, but I wouldn't say that this is like one of my top books that I've read in the last year overall. Is it reminiscent of Gossip Girl? Like the show? I never saw Gossip Girl. Oh. <laughs> I am probably one of the weird people who has not seen it, but yeah. I found it very addictive. So, was it? Yeah. Well, and I'm not it, usually into that stuff. I don't know. What was that other what's that other show? There was another show that had something via like text or something like that. Wasn't there? Pretty Little Lies? Pretty Little Liars? Yeah, I don't I never watched that, but yes, I heard that it was kind of Yeah, I didn't watch similar. it either. But yeah, I, you know, I actually, now that makes me curious if I should, if like when certain things happened and when, like what came first, the show or the book, but you know, again, it was an enjoyable, a fast read. And I do like the style because it keeps things going pretty quickly. It isn't an absolute must on my list. Okay. Fair. That's why we do this. Mm-hmm. Fair. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. What what you got? What's your first one? So my first one, and I just went in the order that I read these. So no particular order, but my first one is Born a Crime, who is written by, it's written by Trevor Noah, if you know the comedian. Oh, yeah. Wait, is he like legit a comedian? Yeah. He's legit a comedian. Doesn't he have Um, a show? He does have a show. Yes. So he is um, half black, half white from South Africa. It was highly recommended to me and I've been to South Africa. We have South African friends. So it was of interest to me because of that. But basically because he was half black, half white and born during apartheid, he was actually a crime in himself because his mom and dad were never supposed to have relations, be together. And it was like, they never were married or anything. It was like kind of like a fling, but more than that. It sounded like, so they legally slept together and then they had him and he lived with his mom who was African-American. Okay. Or I'm sorry, African. He's in South Africa. And so he lived with his mom, but his dad was white. He was from Europe. I can't remember exactly what country, but really interesting just how like he had to be hidden because he was like the evidence of a crime. Right. Wow. And then there's all these stories. So he goes into his childhood, but it's like for such a serious topic, he puts it's it's funny. He keeps it like light, a, despite it light as, the heaviness of the topic. Yeah, comedic okay. twist, and it's it's almost like his autobiography as a child. I, I just thought it was a great book, you know, and it was really enlightening, yet not like difficult to read. Like, oh my gosh, you know, sometimes those kind of subjects can be a little heavy. And oh, sure. It didn't, it didn't feel like that at all. It was just like, and it was refreshing to see what his take on it was, um, especially because like apartheid is this huge thing in South Africa, but how many people are half black, half white? Like, how do you, you know? When did he come to the that? States? You know, I'm not sure. It was when he was older. Okay. Okay. Um, I know he speaks with a, a slight accent. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's so South I just wasn't accent. sure how long he'd been here. Um, especially if they were maybe trying to conceal him a little bit, like while they well, were Well, apartheid was over when he was a child. So after that, then then it was more just about social stuff. Well, that that's the thing. Stuff. I'm sure despite it ending, like it would, it, that doesn't mean that people's mindsets Im- immediately change, right? 
it's a whole culture, you know, a whole acceptance thing. So I, what's funny, Sarah, so because I wasn't sure if this was his autobiography, it, it basically is. And I had somebody at work a couple years ago tell me I have to read this. And it has been on my list of books to read. Just well, says, yeah. Trevor Noda autobiography. <laughs> Well, now you uh, have a friend who can lend it to you. Excellent. Yeah. It's a great book. I would highly recommend it. And I think it's, you know, it was like one of those books that I I went through really fast just because I was enjoying it. Very interesting. I learned a lot from it too. So that's, I, you know, I kind of like that idea because you can, you know, it's, it's a story, but it's real. So you actually learn something historically accurate. Exactly. Um, but it still has that human element to it. It's not like you're reading mm-hmm. like a history textbook or something mm-hmm. like that, you know? And it's all like his viewpoint. I mean, like what a unique viewpoint, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. I do I like recommend it. that. What do you got next lady? Okay. So the next one, this was another recommendation from a friend, the same one who recommended the first 15 lives of Harry August. I'm going to give mm-hmm. Angela a shout out here. Uh, It's called The Immortalist by Chloe Benjamin. And the crazy thing is that this is her first book. Okay. First book. It's kind of incredible. So I like, and I think you guys maybe picked up on this last time, and you'll certainly pick up on it with my last book here. But I do like murder mystery things. (laughs) Oh, here we go. Here's my mystery. Well, this is a mystery, or this is... This one's not the murder mystery. The next one is. But this one, I wanted something that took me out of that element because I like to kind of change things up so I don't get too bored. Mm -hmm. And so I thought that this would be interesting because the way Angela described it, it really addressed kind of the human mind mixed with some gypsy fortune telling stuff. So this is, you know, this is a fiction book. But the other cool thing is that it was listed as Amazon's best book of the year in 2018 in January of 2018. Like- Early on in the year, Amazon was like, this shit's the best. Like, it's so good. Wow. Like, and this girl, it's her first time writing her first publication. Like, this is incredible. I do want to read a couple snippets from the synopsis from the back of the book. Yeah, please do. Okay. So it starts, if you knew the date of your death, how would you live your life? I mean, oh. right there. <laughs> like, it's already like, boom. Like, big question. So this is based in New York City in 1969. Word has spread of the arrival of a mystical woman, a traveling psychic who claims to be able to tell anyone the day they will die. So there's a group of four kids from this one family who set out to kind of just go get their fortunes because they want to find out, you know, and they're like anywhere from, I think, 13 to maybe seven, six or seven is the youngest. The prophecies inform their next five decades. And so the youngest one goes out to the West Coast. Another one pursues magic. The son goes and he works in New York as an army doctor after 9-11. So it actually takes you through so many different decades and talks about kind of like what's going on in the U.S. at that time too. It's pretty cool. And then the last one is the eldest the eldest uh, daughter of the family and she gets into science and immortality. She's looking at, you know, can you really extend longevity by behaving in certain ways? So it really just kind of mixes a lot of different things together. And I think in the way that the story, the stories are told because this one similarly, wow, I have a pattern changes vantage point. (laughs) Wow. I really Ah. do have a pattern. This is ridiculous. I'm just, 
really we're thinking finding about- more. We're finding more about you. We're, we're learning more <laughs> about you, Jamie. Yeah. It kind of makes you question like the initial question from the synopsis came. If you knew the date of your death, how would you live your life? Would, would that change anything? And I think through the stories of each of these four individuals, y- you question that a little bit more. And it really kind of makes you think, should you be living your life any differently now? despite not knowing when you're going to die. I, I don't know. It, it was thought provoking while telling, I think, you know, a very good story. And she uses a great amount of detail. That sounds really interesting. I feel like I might need to read it. Yeah. I got this from the library. I mean, there were some points where it was like a little slower, a little bit more challenging, I think, to get into. Um, mm-hmm. Because like I said, some of the details were pretty, it was pretty in depth um, to some extent. But Overall, it just really kind of captured you and just made you, it made you think a little bit, which is sometimes I like books because they help me escape. And sometimes I like books because they make me kind of reevaluate things. Yeah. crazy. So I would totally, I mean, I would carry on her recommendation for sure. So would you live your life differently? If you knew the date of your death, how would you live your life? Well, isn't this like Phoebe Buffay? Doesn't doesn't Phoebe say that she knows when she'll die or she oh, can yeah. tell? Uh-huh. Or like, I feel like Ross, she's in a conversation with Ross about this at some yeah. point. You know, I would like to say that I wouldn't change my life because I think that I'm living my life the way that I would want to. Um, d- that being said, if I knew that I was going to die within the next like year or so, would I go take that trip that I always wanted to take? Yeah, I would probably do that and prioritize it. But I think that, you know, sometimes people can have, you know, you can have a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, and I think that's okay. But I think it's sort of what you do with the information that you have. Like, do you feel healthy? Do you do you think that you – do you want to plan a trip with other people who have, like, hindrances, you know? Like, I'm just thinking about, like, I was going to go on a trip with my sister-in-law going to a wine country. And it's like, well, we couldn't while she was pregnant. And we, we certainly can plan one now. But actually, no, we can't because we can't travel. <laughs> So I guess we'll COVID have to, has ruined our lives. Yes. I guess we'll have to to look into next year, maybe. But at any rate, I mean, I think, you know, it it certainly helps give a little more validity to some of the choices that we've made. But I fear that if I actually knew the date, like I don't think I would want to know the date. Because I think I would be so scared about what that would mean. I would be fearful that I wouldn't live my life. Do you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, that you'd have too much anxiety. Yes. Leading, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. I so, hear you. All I right. Would you want to know? I feel like I need to read this book and then I'm going to oh, give you and a then decision. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what's your next book? Uh, my next one is called Comfort Me with Apples. Oh, what? <laughs> Comfort, Comfort Me with Apples. Okay. So the author is Ruth Reichel. And why did I buy this? I was in Key West. I had finished my book and I needed another one. I hear you. Were you at the airport? No, I was just in Key West. And I I go through spurts. Like I'll not read for a while and then I'll read. But like once I am reading, usually I'm like, I go through things pretty fast. So I brought actually Border Crime with me and I finished it on the trip. Nice. So I needed something else. So anyways, I was, there was a little bookstore next to our hotel and I walked in and I looked and looked and looked and I, I, I get bored easily. So like I need something entertaining, but this caught my attention because it was about the life of a food critic. And Whoa. I thought that that would be very interesting and it was on sale. 
six dollars and 98 cents sarah sarah you and your bargains exactly i mean so that also was a good perk so this is almost like her autobiography too okay I think I have also learned this about myself. I enjoy more nonfiction stuff. So this, she's telling her story about becoming a food critic. Now, the funny thing is, is this actually is a sequel to her bestseller, which was called Tender at the Bone. <laughs> um, now I Can feel like she, I, I think that she needs to come and create the titles for our episodes. <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> it's so funny. I know. So maybe I'll go back and read that. But anyway. So she tells her story about becoming a food critic. And, you know, in the first couple chapters, I was like, okay, like, she's a good writer. She, you get involved, like, you get into it. But then there's, like, some dramatic twists, like, to her life. Like, not the food critic part. Like, just her life. And, like, it's, like, so it's kind of, like, like... Does she talk about, like, how, like, that impacts her life as a food critic then? Like, how it, like, plays out into her professional yeah, so role? It's very intertwined. Okay. Yes. It's almost like a cooking soap opera. But the other <laughs> thing I really enjoyed is that she has several recipes in here. Oh, so like, oh my God. For like example, what? sweet potato pie. And she talks about like in her chapter, she's talking about who she made the sweet potato pie with and like all that good stuff. And like it's part of her story. But then all of a sudden in the middle, here's a recipe. So like there's a bunch of recipes in, nice. the, in the book. So I kind of like that too because there's I was like, oh, because she's like ta- writing about it and you're like, that sounds delicious. And you're like, oh, wait, I can actually try and make this, which is kind of cool. Um, yeah, I really um, like that idea. And there is, she does talk a little bit about wine in here. So that's interesting as well. Um, but yeah, I, I liked it. I would recommend it, especially if you're into like – I like, you know, we watch a lot of like cooking shows and like chef's table and things like that. And so like, if you're into that and if you're into cooking and food, I definitely think that this is like not just about cooking and food, but it's like also has that kind of, you know, personal element to it, personal element. And you're following her life too, which is, it's all, it's all real. We, and this is, this is something that you just happen to like walk into and you're like, eh, this looks okay. I'm yeah. willing to spend this. Yeah. Okay. So basically it says she shares some of her favorite recipes while also sharing the intimacies of her personal life in a style so honest and warm that readers will feel like they're enjoying a conversation over a meal with a friend. It was surprising. I was not expecting it. And now I feel like I need to go back and read her other one. <laughs> well, you always can. I mean. Tender at the bone. Tender at the bone. Oh my God, that sounds so crazy. It sounds weird. <laughs> oh my God. Um, okay. What is your third and final, Miss Jamie? Okay. My third and final, I just finished this like two days ago. Mm-hmm. It is, And Then There Were None by Agatha okay. Christie. Now, it was first published in 1939. So it's not like a, a recent book, but yeah. my, I have to admit, like my brother. My brother always read Agatha Christie. And today while we're recording, it's his birthday. So happy birthday, brother. But I decided I was like, I went on Amazon and I was just like looking for something. And you know how sometimes Amazon will give you like suggestions? Yes. Like they saw that I had read Murder on the Orient Express and that is written by Agatha Christie. So it ended up suggesting this particular book. So I, you know, I looked at a few, um, a few other of the recommendations and this one sounded very similar to, are you familiar with the movie Clue? Yes. I haven't seen it though. 
Oh my God. Okay. But there is a movie that you would like if you liked Clue um, that we just watched. What? What was it called? I can't remember the name. I'm going to have to find it and tell it to you and the rest of you guys. DVP peeps. Yes. yes, please do because I love that shit. Clue is like one of my all-time favorite movies. It's from 1985. If you haven't seen it, it's a cult classic. Like it was released and nobody really liked it. <laughs> but the reason – oh, my God. I'm not even going to give it away. No, maybe I should give it away. There are three possible endings. Okay. And so uh, in the theaters, they didn't know – they didn't tell you which ending you were going to get. So you could potentially go see it three different times and get a different ending each time. It was very Mm -hmm. tricksy. Anyway, so I have the DVD. But I love love that movie. It's a comedy. It has so many awesome actors in it. And I was reading the description of And Then There Were None. And I was like, well, shoot. Like, this sounds so like Clue. Like, a bunch of strangers get invited by a mystery host to go to this mansion in the case of this book, it's on an island. Ten people are invited to what's called Soldier Island, and it's in it's near the UK. It's near the Devon coast. Okay. But their hosts aren't there. And then all of a sudden, slowly but surely, people are dying. And it's like, what's happening? There is a rhyme, a nursery rhyme that is used in the telling of the story, and it's at the beginning of the book. And it kind of foreshadows what maybe does or does not occur. But it is certainly something that is prevalent in the title and in the book itself. So little murder mysteries there. And this one was like, it was another one of those vantage points one. (laughs) I just, I realized it. So I was talking about the last one. I was like, well, that's your thing. That's your thing. All three of my books today. So This book, for the story, I think it's really, I I thought it was a great story. I mean, particularly because it just, to me, I wanted it to be the board game. Like I was picturing it as a movie and it in fact is apparently a mini TV, a TV miniseries. Yeah. Um, But I will tell you guys this. I wish I had the actual physical book because I was reading it and all of a sudden it just like abruptly ended. It went into like an excerpt for another one of an Agatha Christie books. And I was like, what the fuck? Where is my resolution here? Oh, <laughs> like, that is frustrating. I was so pissed off. I, I was like this close to like texting my brother and being like, WTF, why did you read this book? Like, I don't understand. This seems like the worst authorship ever. I was like, oh my God, I was so furious. And so for whatever reason, I just kept, you know, scrolling through the pages on Kindle because it will tell you like how many pages you have left till the end. Mm-hmm. Normally, it's like all this credit shit that nobody cares about. After like 10 pages of an excerpt, there it is, the rest of the book. And so for the story, it was great. But the fact that the Kindle version actually interrupts the fucking story made me so mad. I'd be furious. So I would definitely recommend reading it. But I would say do not get Kindle. Get your hands on a physical copy from the library, from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, whatever it is. Just Use a physical copy if you're going to read it because or, I would imagine- Or be prepared. Or be prepared. Yeah. Yeah. No, the more yeah. you know, right? This is my, exactly. my warning to you all. Um, I like it. What do you have well, next for us? So I found the movie. It's Knives Out. Dude, I and, just saw it. And Oh, did you watch it? Okay. Did. We did too. Didn't it feel like it was like- A little bit, yeah. It's like a little bit of a mystery. It was, oh my God, it was so wild. We can talk about it off since we've both seen it. I don't want to kill it, yeah. like ruin anything, but that was pretty good. Yeah, and yes, Chris Evans, 
Chris Evans is really hot in it. <laughs> I mean, Chris Evans is really hot anyway. In but. anything, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. My final book is called The Nest. Oh, I've seen that. It's by Cynthia Dupree Sweeney. This okay. was an airport buy. Okay. Okay. So same trip. I'm done with two books. And oh I'm God. like, I mean, like we were only there for three days. Like so literally. like breezing through. But like you're on a sometimes. beach, like maybe. I wasn't on a beach. I was at a pool, but. Uh, oh, same thing. I, yeah, same thing. But sometimes you just, I don't know. It's just, you get in the, the thing. Anyways. So that, then I was like at the airport, we were heading home and I'm like, well, now I'm bored. So now, now you have like a really long flight. So exactly. So I decided to get this. All right. And I actually bought it, but because we had such a, it was like kind of exhausting. I only read a little bit of it. And then I read the rest actually on our trip to Hawaii. Yeah. I want to be a jet setter like you, Sarah. I know, right? I'm just like, <laughs> not anymore. Um, anyway, so you would like this because it's different vantage points. Oh. Okay. But it's basically, it's basically a story that revolves around like a well-off family, the Plum family. Okay. And it's about the different siblings and their inheritance that is shared between them. And each sibling has a, like, they keep going from vantage point to vantage point with the siblings. Um, one chapter is the vantage point from one sibling and the other one's from the other and such and such. Mm. But anyways, it's pretty drama filled. Um, and I think the author does a really good job about building each character and they have very different personalities. Would I recommend it? It wouldn't be my first pick. No. Just because it's like. It's kind, of, it's kind of mindless. It is like a soap opera. It's like a mindless drama type book. Um, but if you're looking for like pure entertainment, then yeah, I would say go for it. So this, I mean, it sounds like um, like the chiclet books. Like I used to read chiclet like all of the time. And it was like the shopaholic, the shopaholic takes Manhattan or like whatever these things are, like Bridget mm-hmm. Jones diary, like that stuff. You know, it's like super beachy reads that is that is like mindless that you can just kind of, uh, like I said before, like escape and, you know, just go off into this other, this other fantasy, whatever crazy chaotic soap opera life that's being depicted here. So it sounds yeah. good. I mean, it sounds like it was an, is a fast read once you got it. Definitely okay. fast. So again, if you want to borrow it from your different, your different vantage points, then uh, go for it. I'm so. now I'm concerned about what my other future books have in store for me. I'm going to have to keep a tally of like vantage point versus not. I actually, I also think this was her first book too. Oh, really? Yeah. First novel. Mm-hmm. There you cool. go. Cool. Good books. You guys got time to sit down and hang out in your house because we're all quarantined and drink some wine with a good book because that's literally like all I've been doing. It's one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> I've been drinking wine while studying wine. So that has also taken up a lot of time. It's a double whammy. It, yeah. You, you kill two birds with one stone. Tell us more about your about wine. This wine. Okay. So, and actually, you- sorry. So it's called Ghostwriter. Did you ever watch the TV show Ghostwriter when you were younger? You know, I think I did, but I barely remember it. I used to love it. I think at one point I was pretending like I was in Ghost Rider, like in the club of the teens who solved the mysteries from the ghosts that typed the stories. It was very weird. <laughs> I, yes, I really loved that show. And then it was, but it was only on for a couple of years. That's what I'm saying. I think I only saw a few episodes. Um, okay. 
No, going back to this wine, um, I like it. You know, it's kind of opened up. It's lighter on the taste than on the look, but it, I stick with my thing: cranberry, cherry. Um, would you say that it's more that it's? Would you consider it a light-bodied wine, or is it more medium-bodied still? I would say medium still. Okay, because Pinot just, would never be he- like full-bodied, but n- uh, no, I would. Uh, if it is, you're not doing it right. If it is, there's certainly something else in that wine. Yeah. It does look, especially how you're seeing it. Oh, yeah. It's not it really – it's it's less so. But, you know, they do say it's one of their more dark and brooding ones. So I okay. th- I would agree. I think that – but, you know, it doesn't on – the, on the tongue, it doesn't – it's not overwhelmingly, like, heavy body. Okay. I would say medium. Nice. Mm-hmm. I would definitely try some of their other stuff. Excellent. See, I want to try to find their Syrah now. Yeah. It's got good acidity too. I, I'll just say that as well. Oh, okay. Oh my gosh. Well, I already have lists of things. I mean, you just added a read. couple more books for what I, what I need to yeah. add to my list, but I've got a few, a few here that I'm trying to prioritize. Uh, once I got I a couple too. Studying. Yeah. So we'll be, we'll be ready for uh, our third book club in a, in a couple months for, yeah, for part three. Part three. Uh, if anybody has recommendations, send them our way. Yeah, let us know, especially now especially. <laughs> while we're stuck in our houses. So anyways. So true. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, on that note, I will cheers you. Cheers until okay. next time. Till next time. Thanks so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform to help spread the DBP word. Check out our website and blog at dbpcheers.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at dbpcheers or on the Drunk Bitches Podcast Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. So send your questions, comments, and fun wine or topic ideas to dbpcheers at gmail.com. Until next time. Cheers Cheers from from the the girls of DBP. DBP.